This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 11th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In his academic career, economist Robert Higgs has provided some of the most compelling arguments and data to challenge assumptions about the New Deal and economic interventionism more broadly. In his new book, Taking a Stand, Higgs reflects on life, liberty, and the economy. We spoke yesterday. Eight or seven years after the financial crisis, um, economists like yourself would argue the crisis occurred well before then, uh, but we saw the results of uh, the housing boom and bust in uh, 2008. So where do things stand economically now? Well, this has been an extraordinarily anemic recovery, as everybody's recognized. the the weakest recovery of any recession since World War II. Uh, so the economy is by no means operating in what would be called a robust manner. Uh, and uh, one of the major items of uh, a mystery, to me at least, uh, has to do with the number of people who, who've simply disappeared from the workforce. The uh, ratio of uh, employment to population dropped abruptly in 2008 by about five percentage points, uh, which is you know five or six million people who who just weren't even looking for work anymore, and they've stayed not looking for work, and it's not clear what they're doing. You know, how, how are they living? How are they occupying themselves? Where did they go? Uh, and uh, this is not a trivial thing. It's not just an idle puzzle because five or six million producers disappearing from the productive apparatus, so far as uh, the official statistics are concerned at least, uh, is a big deduction from the productive potential of the economy. Isn't the employed-to-population ratio, isn't that generally moving downward? Isn't that a long-term trend? Um, It uh, had trended down for a long time for men and had trended upward for a long time for women. And uh, what has happened in the the past uh, seven years is that it, it dropped for both men and women, but the drop was about twice as large for men. So you might say, well, that's just a unusually large continuation of what had been the trend previously for men. But uh, the drop for women is, is a new phenomenon. The women's employment to population had not been dropping at all. It had been just slowly rising for decades. All right. So among among candidates that are talking about uh, <laughs> this, it seems that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump seem to have capitalized pretty well on this, I guess, malaise yeah. out there. Well, I, yeah, I, I, they're certainly trying to do so, and uh, they seem to ha- be having some success. And uh, you know, when when times are are, are somewhat bad, populism comes kind of naturally to a certain group of people and they're they're aiming their uh, their rhetorical arrows at the, those people uh, in uh, in different ways of course Bernie wants to sign everybody up to support 
you know, massive additional government programs to to give stuff of some kind to to the people who are complaining about not having jobs or not having good incomes or whatever. But uh, it's, I think, just a matter of time before both of these guys is eliminated. So I, I don't worry too much about what they're saying or to whom they're appealing and so forth. You know, the, the American political system has some powerful forces in it, and, and they're not hooked up to, to them either of those guys. So it's a long time before the election and they can go out and have a lot of fun and games and, you know, get media attention and what have you. But I think when the when the day comes, they won't they won't be the candidates. In your uh, studies, how do Austrians versus Keynesians describe the fact that this recovery has been so weak? Well, the uh, the Keynesians, you know, emphasize that there's been insufficient stimulus, <laughs> which is a really a, t- a tough story to sell, I think. There's been enormous stimulus, both monetary and fiscal, and, and if that won't do the job, then it would seem to most of us that that's just not the right tool for the job. Uh, the Austrians have a very different view of what's happened, why it happened, and uh, why the recovery so anemic. And uh, and in a way, uh, they they recognize, I think correctly, that the measures the government has taken uh, ostensibly to moderate or reverse the recession are themselves the cause of the the weak recovery. Uh, f- for example, the the zero interest rate policy the Fed has now kept in force for for seven years. Uh, it's just a, a unbelievably bad policy in an Austrian perspective. Um, for 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 mainstream economists, the interest rate is is a very secondary factor in in managing the macro economy. For the Austrians, it's a critical central factor in the success of the economy's operation through time because it's it's the price of future goods in terms of present goods and vice versa. And if you if you destroy the price in a price system, <laughs> that system won't operate anything like uh, it should. So we we've had this situation in which the the future has been 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 priced so cheaply because the interest rate is zero at the low level and near zero even at longer terms, that that we misallocated all kinds of resources, things that, that shouldn't have been done have been done, and, and things that w- would have been done uh, haven't. So it's, uh, it's just been a mess. And what the Fed and its supporters think is, is a good policy uh, uh, of driving the interest rates out of existence uh, could hardly be a worse policy in an, in an Austrian perspective. It's it's a little bit like taking the taking the whole price system, imposing comprehensive price controls on it, and then saying, you know, goods aren't going where they're scarcest. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Why should they? Uh, you don't have relative price signals anymore, saying things are more valuable over there than they are here. 
if you if you drive the interest rate out of existence, you don't have a price signal telling you things are more valuable later than they are now, or vice versa. So you misallocate everything in time, uh, just the way destroying all the prices today would misallocate them in space or across industries. So, so this fix that that the monetary authorities have cooked up. Uh, it's almost a guarantee that there there will have to be major uh, readjustments of the economic structure in the future, and that that's what w- the recession was to begin with. It was the fact that that there'd been all this money created, it it had ended ended up going heavily into housing, uh, into mortgages for people who who weren't really qualified for the mortgages they received, and so they were, they were bound to go belly up and sooner or later. Uh, and then all the, the derivative securities built on top of those mortgage payments uh, went belly up too, and there went AIG and uh, Fannie and Freddie and, and the government takeover of the entire residential mortgage lending industry. In effect, 90% of the residential mortgages come from the government now. Um, so, so this is a case uh, which resembles the New Deal in a way, in that the actions the government has taken, ostensibly to improve the economy, are actually hurting it and making it worse. The the recovery that has taken place has taken place in spite of what the government has done, not because of it. And in a way, it's it's amazing that it's it's done as well as it has. Let me ask you about another economic recovery that that, that may be instructive to mm-hmm. our listeners, and that was the recovery that took place after the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. How do Keynesians uh, try to explain that? I mean, because you have uh, essentially a a ramping down of a war machine, a, a massive number of young men who are to be reabsorbed into the economy somehow. And yet, it happened. Yeah, and 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 it didn't seem to have uh, major disruptions. It was incredibly smooth, given the magnitudes. Uh, it was also a an absolutely undeniable refutation of Keynesian economics as a whole, because if there was ever an experiment to say is Keynesian economics basically right, that was it. Uh, you know, if, if you had a small change in the government's fiscal position, then you might say, okay, well, it was overwhelmed by some opposite forces that happened along at the time. But, but what happened at the end of World War II was so enormous that there's no question. In fact, all the Keynesians at the time expected a, a reoccurrence of the Depression conditions, mass unemployment. Or they were uh, all worried uh, that it would be worse in, after the war than it had been before the war. And instead, we had this magnificent recovery. Nine million men in the first year after the war ended were released from the military, and virtually all of them who wanted to work went to work. The unemployment rate went from 2% to 4%. <laughs> and, and, and even those, those that were unemployed, there were about a million veterans that were unemployed in 1946. They were, they were given a year's unemployment benefits by the GI Bill 
So a lot of guys, you know, they've, they've been out in New Guinea or something for, for years. They say, hell, I'm not going to work. I'm going to just, you know, relax here uh, for the next year. They're going to pay me to do it. So, so there really wasn't any unemployment at all, uh, <laughs> uh, and and the Keynesians, uh, frankly, I think they they have just acted as if this whole event never happened, because all they can do to explain it is, is to try to dream up some kind of special ad hoc reason why things went so smoothly in the opposite direction of what their theory told them would happen. Uh, and 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 they're to this day they're they're failing to see that the whole way of thinking that's embodied in Keynesian macroeconomics was was simply demolished by that experience. It can't be right and have that experience. But they whistled, and then they went forward. Why did that policy get adopted? Why, you know, given the popularity of those of Keynesianism mm -hmm. at, at that time, how was that allowed to proceed the way it did? Yeah. Well, uh, fortunately, some people in the government, um, including Bernard Baruch and others, uh, used their influence to, to demobilize the, the economic apparatus of warfare as quickly as possible. Businessmen had a different view in 1945 than the Keynesian economists had. Businessmen, by and large, thought it'll be okay at the end of the war. We have a lot of back orders. We have a lot of customers we haven't been able to serve during the war because of the different government restrictions on, on what we could produce and materials we could acquire and what have you. But now uh, that those restrictions are off, we can serve these customers, and we know they're there. Uh, so they were looking forward to a pretty good situation, uh, which turned out to be the case, only better. You know, it was <laughs> and and when it was uh, that, and and the fact that you no longer had this bunch of crazies uh, surrounding the president, as you had in the late '30s. You know, howling for more regulation and more government takeovers. Uh, you didn't have that anymore. So the regime uncertainty that had built built up after 1935 was not really a factor. Uh, people's the, the public opinion about business had changed because during the war, business didn't seem to be, you know, the villain anymore. As the Roosevelt had blamed businessmen for the continuation of the depression and so forth. So that wasn't a plausible story for Democrats. They didn't try to tell it. Uh, so just uh, all the things that that would work in the right direction uh, happened to be adopted, and, and, and the effect was stupendous. So in, in essence, if I understand you correctly, there was this uh, effective, massive deregulation at the end of oh, World yes. War II. Oh, yes. See, the, the war years had, had seen a completely controlled economy. Uh, practically every aspect of economic life was controlled or operated by the government. And most of those, the overwhelming majority of those controls uh, were scrapped quickly. A few of them remained, uh, at least for a while. A few of them remained forever. But uh, the bulk, the great bulk, uh, was terminated in less than a year 
So that was essential. Today, we have a massive regulatory state, far more massive than we did in the, during World War II. Uh, not to the extent of getting basic goods and services, but certainly uh, regulation of affects business people and individuals mm-hmm. broadly. How much of a role does that play into uh, the an relatively anemic recovery? Well, I think it plays a large role, but you know, in addition to the fact that there, there's just a lot of regulation uh, and was a lot before the recession occurred, uh, the the government's actions after the re- recession occurred and the financial debacle occurred uh, created a big surge of additional uncertainty because not only was the Federal Reserve System doing unthinkably huge, never-before-tried things, but uh, at the same time, after Obama was elected, we had all this politicking about Obamacare, uh, which was very critical to employers' decisions about hiring people or retaining people or how they would hire people. And we had all this ongoing uncertainty about the financial reform legislation, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act. And both those things, as you recall, were being debated and discussed uh, for a long time before their actual enactment. Uh, and and that created additional uncertainty be, because they're both enormous bills. They both set in motion hundreds of new, distinct rulemaking uh, obligations for regulatory agencies. Some some of these new regulatory agencies didn't even exist and had to be created to to play that role. So so all of that turmoil associated with the government's reaction to the recession and and what it was going to do next you know it's taken over car companies it's it's nationalized hundreds of banks by buying shares in them and so forth it made it very difficult for people to formulate long run plans and so when that's the case businessmen just hunker down uh, they don't commit large amounts of money to long-term projects. Uh, Peter Van Doren here is the editor of Regulation Magazine. He, he and I spoke not too long ago about uh, the Jimmy Carter record when it comes to deregulation mm-hmm. and that uh, his regulatory reforms that he signed into law have contributed mightily to uh, the pros- some of the prosperity that we enjoy today. Is that is that kind of uh, renewal of that of uh, a, a mass deregulation is that something that is uh, overdue? Oh yes, uh, it's certainly overdue. I don't I don't foresee it though. Uh, I don't think right now there's any upsurge of demand or politicking aimed at, at bringing that about. Uh, there you know there are always people uh, fighting about regulations. People trying to get rid of some of the ones that exist and others trying to impose new ones. But uh, I, I don't see any reason to think we're on the verge of another Carter-like uh, deregulatory surge. Uh, th- that Carter phenomenon was was quite important, actually, and in some industry, like the transportation industries and some of the energy industries, was, was a big factor in the later prosperity after Carter had left office. <laughs> so failing that, uh, what are uh, some policies that, that you say would help us get back to uh, the kind of world where there is a 
steadily increasing uh, prosperity for most people in America. Uh, I think government spending should be drastically reduced. Um, and that, of course, would simultaneously reduce the accumulation of government debt. Uh, I, I think you know all these new initiatives that are being advanced by various uh, politicians for new regulations or new welfare programs or what have you are terrible ideas. And if those were all abandoned, that would be a boon to economic life. Uh, you know, any anything that could be done to curtail the the size, scope, and power of the government would have a positive effect, and and that could take many different forms. In, in specific terms of uh, spending reduction, right. what are the economic impacts of a, a large-scale reduction in federal spending? I'm, I'm hearing the complaints now from mm -hmm. folks here in Washington, D.C., well, if you cut that spending, that then will be plunged into a, into a recession. Well, uh, the... The effect of, of uh, cutting the spending is, is that you you create a situation in which fewer resources are are captured by government. Uh, the, the reason government spending is important is that when they go out and buy something, they take those resources that have alternative uses and they put them to whatever use they're they're buying them for some government program. Government programs are, are generally counterproductive and wasteful activities. So if you have government commanding fewer of the resources in the economy, that means you have more at the disposal of people who will use them for productive purposes. So, so governments drain on the, the, the resources that exist through its spending uh, is always a kind of sea anchor dragging the whole apparatus down. And whenever you lighten that, you get more headway being made by the remaining economy. So you're not even talking, uh, if I understand correctly, you're not even talking about the reduction in uh, income taxes. You're talking about the productive available resources yes. that could be devoted to any other use and would be available on the market. Yes, that's right. Ultimately, that's the true tax. That's why you don't want to attend so much to government's tax revenues as to its spending. Its spending is where it captures real resources, and that's the real tax. Economist Robert Higgs is author of Taking a Stand and many other books. We spoke following a forum for the book held yesterday. You can watch that forum at Cato.org.